I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. Welcome back. So today we've uh, we, we've got some good studies that we want to go over with you. Uh, we are looking at three different studies that cover two different topics. Uh, so Jason, what exactly are we bringing to the table today? Yeah, so we got three uh, really good things to look at. Uh, like you said, two topics. We're going to look at uh, TXA um, uh, in reference to the stamp trial using TXA in the pre-hospital setting. And then uh, a couple things on some pretty new and upcoming, I think, pretty exciting things of uh, using ultrasound, point of care ultrasound uh, in the field. So, yeah. So. Uh, so, yeah, we can start off with TXA. Um, let's uh, let's let's kind of warm up and talk about it a little bit. Jason, what exactly is TXA? Yeah. So, of course, we've uh, you know, we've we've done some podcasts and we've spoken at length uh, about some of the blood administration that's going on in the pre-hospital setting that is uh, really showing to be not only safe, but effective in EMS. So TXA is just really the opposite of that. It's taking a patient who has a uh, high index of suspicion of hemorrhage uh, and is uh, given as, uh, well, what we're going to look at is as soon as possible to potentially stop that bleeding. And so just to refresh everybody's memory, um, TXA, what actually is an amino acid, it's a synthetic amino acid. Um, that actually blocks plasminogen from becoming converted to plasmin, uh, which if you remember back to uh, the lovely clotting cascade you had to memorize in school, um, where plasmin falls in the clotting cascade, it stops that process and actually prevents fibrinolysis or the lysis of the clot, the obliterating of the clot, uh, and hopefully through that process uh, can slow down bleeding, if not stop it altogether. Absolutely. And that's a very, that was a very good introduction to it. And essentially, uh, something that, that commonly gets mistaken, a lot of people think that it creates more clots. So if correct me, if I'm wrong, it doesn't necessarily create more clots. It just prevents current clots from being broken down, right? Yeah, that's correct. Awesome. All right. So the first uh, paper that we're going to look at is, um, Transexamic acid during pre-hospital transport in patients at risk for hemorrhage after injury. And uh, this is an offshoot of the STAMP trial, uh, the STAAMP uh, pre-hospital TXA trial um, that was conducted uh, starting in 2015. Uh, so this is um, out of um, the University of Pittsburgh and the STAMP uh, study group. And really, you know, the background, like we were kind of just uh, kind of talking about is that we know TXA works. Uh, we know that it works when given in the hospital. So what these authors look to do and uh, these uh, designers looked to see if the, and since TXA we know works in the hospital, should we give it to patients closer to their time of injury or closer uh, to the time of first medical contact? So, um, this is uh, th this is something they looked at, and so their uh, research question was: Does pre-hospital administration of TXA compared with placebo result in a lower 30-day mortality in patients at risk for hemorrhage after trauma? So this is what they did. This was a pragmatic study, which is really just to say this was a safety study, a feasibility study, to see if this uh, not only benefited the patient but was also safe. So this is a pragmatic phase three prospective 
multi-center, double-blinded, placebo-controlled, randomized clinical trial. So the uh, really the highest level uh, that you can do to hopefully remove all bias. So it was perspective. They had to enroll patients as they came. It was multi-center. There were four participating level one trauma centers. It was double-blinded, whereas the paramedic giving, giving the TXA or placebo did not know what they were giving, and the patient did not know what they were getting. And then it was uh, randomized by a computer. It was randomized one-to-one to one-to-one. Um, actually while the patients um, were out in the field. So they uh, randomized the patients to the TXA group. They randomly assigned also in the hospital to either receive TXA or a, um, another placebo. Uh, so the outcome was primarily centered around 30-day mortality, uh, and they looked at patients that made sure they, they were not requiring blood. They had significant um, they had significant trauma and they were enrolled at the scene versus uh, the uh, referring hospital, which we'll talk about in just a minute. So the inclusion criteria are injured patients uh, transferred either from the scene or uh, from a referring hospital to the trauma center, but it had to be within two hours of the injury. Uh, and they had to have at least one of the following uh, hypotension. Uh, and they defined the hypotension as a systolic blood pressure of uh, less than or equal to 90 millimeters of mercury. Uh, they also, they, or they had to have one episode of tachycardia that they in the study just, just, um, defined as a heart rate of greater than or equal to 100 beats per minute. And the patients had to be um, within 18 to 90 years old. So as far as the exclusion criteria, of course, the negative of uh, what we just said, but if there was a lack of IV access or intraosseous access, if they fell from a, a significant distance, if um, they had a spinal cord injury, if it was penetrating brain injury, hanging, drowning, really anything that could cause death other than the hemorrhage, uh, these patients were excluded. So they looked at this again for 30-day um, uh, 30-day mortality. They also had a secondary outcome uh, that they looked at, which was 24-hour and in-hospital mortality was uh, the secondary endpoint there. So the results. Uh, so they they looked at this um, from May the 1st of 2015 through October 31st of 2019. There were, over that time, there were 6,559 patients that were screened. Uh, 927 patients became eligible for enrollment, which is a really good number. Uh, there were 24 patients uh, that were really that were found either ineligible or they withdrew from consent afterwards. Uh, so they that brought them to a total of of 903 randomized patients. 447 got the TXA, and 456 got the um, placebo. The majority of these patients uh, had blunt mechanism of injury, 85% um, in the placebo and 83% in the TXA. Um, and so most of them had, 71% of them had the tachycardia, less had uh, the actual um, hypotension. So the primary outcomes, again, 30-day mortality. Uh, the information was available in 99% of the patients, only 9, uh, nine patients total had missing data. So mortality in the TXA arm was 8.1%, and in the placebo arm, 
so with that, in a p-value of 0.17, was uh, there is no statistically significant differences um, in the two. In the secondary outcomes, 24-hour uh, mortality and, and hospital mortality, again, there was no difference in the group. Uh, and in the uh, 6 to 24-hour blood transfusion requirement, no difference in the group. And then the six-hour total blood component transfusion um, uh, incidence of venous thromboembolism, there was no difference in the group as well, which is a little bit different than they saw in the first reported um, uh, trial with STAMP. There was actually a little bit of an increase um, in uh, th uh, venous thromboembolism. So those are, you know, those are the, um, those are the results. We, uh, you know, as we ask questions and we look at things like this, uh, you know, we have strong feelings that things are going to work. And then we uh, go ahead and look at them and, you know, it becomes maybe perhaps a little bit surprising that the results uh, weren't a little more significant. So what do you think about that, Brandon? Yeah, it's, I can't help but wonder, you know, if, if we are able to administer TXA in the emergency department setting and make a difference, I don't quite understand what the difference is between, you know, why it would be any different earlier on. I mean, is it because could there have been variables as far as the patients who received it in this trial may not have truly been bleeding? I mean, what, what do you th what do you think is the cause of that? Yeah, so I think there is when we look at things like this, and you know, we'll kind of start with the with what I think are some of the issues first, and then we'll kind of get to what I think are some kind of behind the scenes and maybe a little bit um, underappreciated benefits of this. You know, when we measure, you know, when you measure things in hospitals for bleeding, uh, you know, we're we're taught from the beginning that blood pressure really should not be the driving factor or the line of demarcation on whether or not somebody's in shock or whether or not somebody's bleeding. Um, and that's why, you know, the, the tachycardia component is is so significant um, and not the blood pressure. You know, we, we talked uh, about even just about blood administration, that are we harming patients or are we not benefiting patients enough because we're going off of that strict 90 millimeter um, blood pressure. So if that's kind of our line for treatment, I think that's uh, that's definitely a limitation. You know, in the hospital, uh, we have lab values. We can look at the H and H, and we can see the hemoglobin and the hematocrit drop, and we can see it drop subtly or significantly, and we can determine whether or not a patient is bleeding. Uh, you know, there's other stuff. You know, with, with ultrasound and um, things like that that I think take away a lot of the high index of suspicion and go after a little bit more objective. So um, I'm I'm not as familiar with some of the other trials, and I know people are listening, going, "Well, I, I am." And please let it call us up and let us know that the crash two data um, and some of the uh, uh, again, I'm not as familiar with the in hospital protocols for when a patient gets TXA. Um, but I'm going to guess that with uh, some of their lab values, um, that uh, they're a little bit more specific on who the, the people are actually bleeding. And when you can determine more specifically that a patient is bleeding, then I think uh, it goes to reason that TXA is going to be more effective um, in those patients. Absolutely. Because if this, like you were saying earlier, if, if this proves anything, it's that it's safe that it's, it's a safe thing to administer pre-hospital. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's, uh, you know, that's the big benefit. Um, not only is it safe, 
but it really shows and probably even the more encouraging thing. And we saw this with trials like Primed uh, and others that we that we talked about. It's really difficult to randomize patients in the pre-hospital setting. Uh, it's it's you know there it's just wrought with um, inaccuracies and difficulties, and to have this many patients randomly enrolled um, is just incredibly encouraging, and this really opens up enormous possibilities uh, for research in EMS. But let's go back to this for just a minute because there there are there are a few other limitations I think that are are worth uh, pointing out. You know, anytime you're going after any just a one single outcome, um, you know, you're really making it very binary. It's either a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And it really takes someone to go in and they have done this in this, some of this post hoc review uh, that looks beyond the 30 day mortality. Uh, that's why, again, why they had the secondary and the secondary still proved that there was no difference, but, um, you know, so a limitation really that they had was, um, they were actually using a 16% mortality estimate to, and so it really made the study underpowered, um, which, you know, is, is a limitation in any study. Anytime you have an underpowered study that makes it really difficult. Um, the enroll, they enrolled patients with an overall low injury severity score. The median injury severity score was 12, um, and, uh, only 22%, um, had an initial pre-hospital systolic blood pressure of less than 90. So the 71% of them, uh, they were just going out, off of uh, tachycardia. And of course, we can name a thousand other reasons that a patient would be tachycardic. Um, and so having that low injury uh, severity score, I think definitely made it underpowered as well. And and just for the the folks who may not be familiar with injury severity score, uh, Jason, what's the range for an inju- injury severity score? Yeah, so the the scale actually goes all the way up to seventy five. Mm. Um, so it's uh, you know it's it's a pretty low score. Yeah, uh, twelve. To be, yeah, to be talking about people that are so sick that they need TXA or they're hemorrhaging so much that they need TXA, um, I think definitely uh, becomes a bias with this. Mm. But you know, really, over overall, um, while it did not show a benefit, this is absolutely, and I want to be really clear these these are not trials that necessarily become game changers as far as you have to change your practice now. Either don't do not ever give TXA; it does not show a benefit. I do not think that this is what this is what this is saying. I think this these are the initial trials that lead to other trials and maybe now we need to narrow um, our scope and narrow our inclusion criteria. You know, maybe we need to carry point of care testing um, to be able to do um, an H and H. Maybe we need to be able to get a lactate. You know, those are those are not cheap to do. Uh, they are difficult to do, but if we are going to go to these lengths, maybe that's, uh, you know, something that we have to look at that. So, um, you know, there were some other things, the, you know, the, the dose of, uh, of the TXA may have been um, underdosed. Uh, you know, they had, they, they gave a regimen of at least two grams and maybe it needs to go to three grams. Mm. Um, and so, you know, maybe it needs to be delivered, uh, you know, delivered differently, maybe slower, maybe faster, maybe in a different concentration. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that we learn from this, but ultimately 
to me, what we learned was the take-home point is number one, TXA is safe. No, either there was no major reactions to this. The other way that it was safe, it had a very low rate of venothromboembolus, mm. uh, which can be a big problem. You know, we start giving TXA and the blood clots a little too much, and now we're fighting PEs. Uh, you know, that would be a reason to probably to probably shut it down, but it wasn't. And so we need further studies. Um, but again, the two biggest take-home points are it's safe. EMS can randomize people and EMS can do research and do it well on a large scale. So I think all that said, this was a very positive trial. All right, awesome. Let's move on to our next topic. So I'm actually really excited about this. Uh, this is something that I've wanted to dive into for a long time. A lot of services throughout the country and throughout the world are incorporating uh, point of care ultrasound testing in their pre-hospital setting. So uh, let's let's dive into this paper that was published online by Cambridge University Press in November of 2020. Uh, it's titled Randomized Controlled Trial of Point-of-Care Ultrasound Education for the Recognition of Tension Pneumothorax by Paramedics in Pre-Hospital Simulation. So the primary goal behind this study was to determine if ultrasound use after just a brief uh, point of care ultrasound training and lecture on cardiac and lung exams would result in, a, in more paramedics being able to correctly identify attention pneumothorax during simulation. Um, and so, in fact, that's, that's what they did. They did a very short, a very brief uh, lecture and hands-on component, and then they had a control group that didn't. So let's dive into the methods a little bit specifically. A randomized controlled simulation-based trial of point-of-care ultrasound lung exam education investigating the ability of paramedics to correctly diagnose tension pneumothorax was performed. Uh, the ultrasound intervention group received a 30-minute, so it's only 30 minutes. It's not like they spend a full eight hours or a week training on this. They received a 30-minute cardiac and lung ultrasound lecture followed by hands-on ultrasound training. The control group, however, did not receive any ultrasound training. All right, so that's uh, the the playing field is is pretty well set there. Both groups participated in two scenarios. Uh, the one scenario was a right unilateral tension pneumothorax, and and the other scenario was undifferentiated shock, which had no pneumothorax whatsoever. Uh, so we have a right-sided tension pneumo, and then the other scenario, there's no tension pneumo. In both scenarios, the patient continued to be hypoxemic after verified intubation with pulse oximetry of 86% to 88% and hypotensive with a blood pressure of 70 over 50. So, you know, if you're if you're looking at the scenario, if you're looking at the markers, the, the different vital signs, you see that narrowed pulse pressure, so you definitely think shock. Uh, you see a decreased oxygen saturation, uh, so that could indicate hypoperfusion. That could in indicate, you know, tension pneumothorax. So, again, they're looking at several different things at play here. Um, and just like any good simulationist would do, uh, sirens were played at 65 decibels to mimic the pre-hospital transport conditions. Um, and also, uh, just to kind of keep things... Uh, accurate. A simulation educator stated aloud the time diagnoses were made and the procedures performed, which were recorded by the study investigator. And so this is also a pretty important piece as well. Uh, 
before and after the study, paramedics completed a pre-survey and a post-survey. And as we as we keep moving on in the study, we'll learn about some of those questions that primarily uh, re revolved around had they ever received any type of ultrasound training before. All right, so let's let's dig a little deeper into the results and uh, get some specifics on the numbers. So 30 paramedics were randomized to the control group. So remember, the control group had zero ultrasound training. Uh, and then 30 paramedics were randomized to the ultrasound intervention group. So those are the ones who had that 30-minute classroom followed by practical session. Uh, most paramedics had not received prior ultrasound training and had not previously performed a point-of-care ultrasound exam and were, in fact, uncomfortable with ultrasound. So with that, ultrasound use was significantly higher in the ultrasound intervention group, so the group that actually had the 30-minute the class, the use was significantly higher, and uh, they used it in both simulation cases. And a higher percentage of the paramedics in the ultrasound group arrived at the correct diagnosis for tension pneumothorax compared to the control group. So 77% of the paramedics who had the class, who had the ultrasound training at the beginning of the day, they correctly identified the tension pneumothorax. However, the control group, the group that did not have the training, 57% of them correctly identified the tension pneumothorax. All right. So with that to say, there was no difference in the correct diagnosis between the control and ultrasound intervention groups for the undifferentiated shock case, which is encouraging. You, you know, you see that they, they can both identify, hey, there's no tension pneumo here. Uh, this is shock. We're going to treat it, you know, in a different way. Uh, on the post-survey, more paramedics in the ultrasound intervention group were comfortable with point-of-care ultrasound uh, for evaluation of the lung and comfortable decompressing the tension pneumothorax using ultrasound, which makes sense to me. Um, and with that, paramedics reported that ultrasound was within their scope of practice on the survey as well. So, conclusions. So, what did this study prove to us? So, despite being novice point-of-care ultrasound users, the paramedics were more likely to correctly diagnose attention pneumothorax during simulation after a very brief, remember, it was only 30 minutes, a 30-minute educational intervention. And also, the paramedics were comfortable using point-of-care ultrasound and felt as if it improved their uh, tension pneumothorax diagnostic skills. So that was that was really encouraging for me to hear. And honestly, it's uh, it's exciting because I've always wondered if this would be something that we could include on the truck. I mean, Jason, you you've been a paramedic for for decades now, and I mean, is this something that you would ever have thought twenty years ago that you would have in the back of an ambulance? No, because up until recently, these machines have been big, they've been cumbersome, they've been incredibly expensive, and they're just not able to, you know, have them mass produced in ways that uh, that we can use them. And even if we could, they become uh, what we would probably think is, you know, there's, there's people that uh, go to school for years to learn how to do echocardiograms. Um, and venous studies and, and things with ultrasound. And so it would stand to reason that, well, you couldn't really put this in the hand of an ambulance driver and then all of a sudden say, hey, use this and use it as a diagnostic tool. However, when, uh, you know, we recently um, were part of a uh, trauma conference uh, in the 
uh, just a few months ago. And one of the big discussions was, should we decompress uh, chests? And I think what we've what we've come to find is that to diagnose a tension pneumothorax is incredibly difficult. You know, we all learn the tracheal deviation. I've never seen tracheal deviation. Nope. Um, I, you know, I think by, probably by the time you see tracheal deviation, they're dead. If you don't do something before, then they're dead. But on the other side, you know, other side of that, by the time it's going to cause shock, um, you know, they're probably dead too. Uh, but we don't want to just start sh sticking needles in people's chest just because we think that maybe they have a tension pneumothorax. There's a lot of things that can go wrong there. There's, you know, there's a lot of veins and arteries and stuff right there in the upper chest mm -hmm. that we can really cause some harm. So when we're talking about non-invasive um, imaging, the concept of it becomes really a no-brainer. And so now with technology and um, actually, Brandon, I'll, I'll g give us uh, the um, experience that you had with one of the ED physicians <laughs> on how he showed you how he did ultrasound. Absolutely. So one of our friends, Dr. Nick Johnson, uh, he's an emergency department physician. We've had him on the podcast before. He's a very very passionate advocate for uh, EMS providers. We were having a discussion one day and uh, I said, you know, do you think that that ultrasound will ever be something that is readily used in the back of an ambulance and is something that is, you know, used as a diagnostic tool on a regular basis by paramedics? And he said, hold on one second. And to give a little backstory, a little background, he was on his way to shift. So it's not like he walks around with this thing in his pocket all the time, <laughs> you know, just doing ultrasound scans on people. Uh, he pulls he pulls his little pocket ultrasound out of his pocket, pulls out his cell phone, goes over to his briefcase and pulls out some ultrasound gel, unbuttons his shirt and does an ultrasound of his heart, records it on his cell phone and then texts it to me. Mind you, I didn't even have the app installed and I still got a, a video message with an ultrasound of his heart. And then he looked up and he said, you tell me. <laughs> yeah. I and mean, imagine if you can transmit that data, um, just how powerful that uh, diagnostic tool is, not for, not just for the, us in the field, uh, but for the receiving facility as well. All right, so our final one goes along uh, the same lines with point-of-care ultrasound. This was published in Pre-Hospital Disaster Medicine. This is paramedic identification of esophageal intubation by ultrasound. Uh, so uh, rapid identification of esophageal intubation, of course, is critical. Uh, we do know that the uh, gold standard is continuous waveform capnography. It actually should be direct laryngoscopy first and then confirmed and monitored, even more importantly, with continuous waveform capnography. However, for some reason, this just does not seem to be um, a standard everywhere. There still seems to be people uh, unfamiliar with waveform capnography. Uh, however, in all the literature and all the recommendations, it absolutely is the gold standard for ET tube confirmation. But it does have limitations. So point-of-care ultrasound, could it be useful? Um, as an alternative for confirming ET2 placement. Uh, so the objective of this study was, was just to determine the accuracy of paramedics uh, performing point-of-care ultrasound. Could they identify esophageal intubation with and without ET tube manipulation? So that's an important part. Uh, as you're looking at things in ultrasound, if things are not moving, structures can be very difficult to see. So imagine if you have an ultrasound on uh, someone's chest and you see 
things like uh, the the bronchi bronchi. You see the esophagus, and you see an endotracheal tube. Sometimes uh, they can be a little bit different, di difficult to determine which is which. And so, if you just manipulate the uh, endotracheal tube uh, by twisting it, when you see that motion then you can actually see a lot better on ultrasound. So uh, they wanted to look at how well can paramedics do with the ET tube staying static and then also with it being manipulated. So this was a perspective um, observational study. They used cadaver, uh, cadavers. Uh, they took local paramedics and recruited them as subjects uh, and each completed a survey of their demographics, employment, so they could kind of see where is everybody's uh, starting point. So the investigators randomly placed endotracheal tube in either the trachea or the esophagus of four different cadavers, uh, confirming with direct laryngoscopy where it was uh, actually being placed. Uh, so then the subjects, uh, the paramedics just attempted to determine the position using po uh, point of care ultrasound. Uh, this is uh, without any uh, prior training. And then they, they, uh, they did the same thing again and manipulated the tube by twisting it. And so that they could actually see, uh, does that make a difference in determining whether or not they can identify an endotracheal tube in the trachea or in the esophagus? So during the 12 studies, um, they, uh, they looked at uh, 57 subjects that participated. Uh, they evaluated a total of 228 intubations, 113 of them tracheal, 115 esophageal. Uh, all the paramedics had a median experience of seven years, uh, which I think is, uh, is pretty important. Uh, but para so paramedics correctly identified endotracheal tube location on 69% of the cases uh, without manipulation and 85% with endotracheal, manipula endotracheal tube manipulation. Uh, so the sensitivity and specificity, the whether or not they, they would say yes or no of identifying the esophageal tube when it was not moving Sensitivity was 52% and the specificity was 86%. And then when they manipulated the tube, it went all the way to a sensitivity of 87% and a specificity of 83%. Uh, and that had a p-value of less than 0 0.0001, so highly statistically significant. Uh, so the subjects correctly identified 41 previously incorrect identify, identified esophageal intubations, which I think is uh, incredibly important. Uh, and so the paramedic experience from the previous intubation and the point of care ultrasound experience did not correlate with the ability to identify the tube location. In fact, let me go back to their experience. Their experience was 0.6 years to 39 years. And none of those years mattered when it came to this. We did not, they did not see with paramedics with less experience or on the far end of the spectrum of too much experience uh, having any other problems than anyone else with a point of care ultrasound. So they could actu actually um, identify and accurately identify the esophageal intubations and, uh, with and without manipulation. However, the manipulation of the tube did uh, greatly improve identification. So this is an incredibly exciting um, uh, paper. I think it's a great starting place. Uh, you know, when we're talking about simulation, having access uh, to cadavers, 
uh, takes away a lot of the issues that we see with simulation. So that was a really good thing. And I think it really just shows a, a proof of concept uh, that paramedics can do it well. And once we can figure out how to get these out, I think we're going to see a lot of significant improvement in our skills and our uh, identification of how well those skills are performed. Absolutely. And that's the biggest thing that that this study uh, made me think about was just and I think you talked about it before we even started recording. We I think we've barely scratched the surface with what we can identify with ultrasound. I mean, and, you know, like I said, you know, verifying intubation tube placement, man, I could if I had an ultrasound as another confirmation device to say, yep, you've got that airway on this little pediatric. <laughs> Heck, yeah, man. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we, you know, we we interviewed um, Craig Stanley um, back uh, a while ago and he talked about some of the medical legal stuff. And one of the things that he talked about uh, going through the seven figure payouts, what are the what are the things that uh, get patients and their families seven figures? And one of those was the miss the unidentified esophageal intubation. And, uh, you know, intubation is not an easy skill. It's not a skill that is done um, regularly. And so the use of video laryngoscopes is a huge game changer. But how many of you listening have seen the, the tube pass the cords? Breath sounds were perfect. Capnography was perfect. And then you stopped measuring it continuously. And then by the time they got to the ED, uh, the tube was out of place and in the esophagus and you go in. I, I know it was there. I've documented it. But unfortunately, the only documentation uh, that's going to be in the chart of objective objectively is going to be that X-ray or that ultrasound from the ED that shows, well, it's now in the esophagus. So I think this is definitely um, a great uh, page, not just a patient care, but a medical legal issue to be able to constantly monitor that patient and then actually have objective um, documentation and images that uh, follow that patient and show that uh, what was done in the field was correct. Absolutely. And, and I think that that's uh, my second favorite thing about both of these studies is the fact that everything we're talking about doing, you know, we're not even proposing a uh well technically we're not proposing anything we're just looking at you know we're looking at data we're looking at studies but <clears throat> everything we're talking about tonight is non-invasive it's all diagnostic stuff so you're not causing any harm or any potential harm to the patient unless of course you're prolonging care that needs to be done but in these situations you're utilizing diagnostic equipment to verify your care i mean man i that's uh to me that increases our margin of safety by a lot. You know, I can, oh, I yeah. Can't put it. No, no. One, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, we spoke with Dr. Antevi about is the PEA issue. You know, when we have PEA, just because we see something on the monitor and we can't feel anything in the carotid or femoral, we call that um, pulseless activity. But is it pulseless activity or is it just you can't feel a pulse? You know, so there's right. a lot of stuff, especially in this COVID era of should we even be working PEA arrests? Well, the only reason to not work a PEA arrest is because there's assumption, there's an assumption that there is no pulsatile activity. Uh, that's an assumption. 
But what if we had point of care ultrasound and we could see that and document it and know it objectively that the heart is or is not moving? Absolutely. My gosh. I'm almost going to have a guilty conscience <laughs> from now on during PEA. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think this has been a great discussion, man. Th this is uh, these are both two very interesting topics, and I feel like we're probably going to talk about them a little more. And with that to say, if you got if you folks listening, if there's anything on here that you want to comment on, if there's any if there are any studies that you're like, hey, hey, wait a minute, look at this. This is address this addresses what you were talking about earlier. Please, by all means. Go to our website, www.medicclasscitizen.com. Scroll down on the bottom of the homepage, and there's a feedback field. You don't have to subscribe. Just because you're leaving feedback, that does not mean you're going to get an email from us. Um, now, we likely will thank you for your time, but uh, that does not sign you up for our email list. All it does is sends us a message directly saying, hey, cover this study or look at this paper, look at this review. Um, so if you have any other ideas for us, shoot them our way. You've been listening to MediClass Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.